This is the Christian Heritage London podcast from London. Well, it is a great privilege for me to be sitting here with Mez McConnell. Cool. No worries. How are you doing, sir? I'm chilling. I'm on holiday. <laughs> I'm relaxed. Excellent. Last time I saw you, we were in London, in the British Museum. We were. Yeah. And it was, uh, you had with you uh, a couple of friends, and one of them was a uh, young Sam. That's right. Who had previously been, uh, I think he was described himself as, he had been a gangster. Yeah, yeah. 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 Built in gangsterism. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then another... Scottish guy, Steve, Big yes. Stephen. Yeah, yeah. 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 What was tru- uh, stood out to me from that visit to the British Museum was as we went from room to room, Sam came and asked me questions about the uh, Old Testament oh, yeah. stories, which no one had asked me. Yeah. And it struck me that here's a guy who's getting right into the detail. Oh, yeah. Big, Big Sam spent four months researching the Nephilim. I had to tell him to calm down at one point. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to see what he found. Because maybe you could explain it to me. It, it was hilarious because that um, that weekend it was a um, was it Ligonier conference yeah, something like that. Yeah. And um, after the sort of evening event, we joined the, some, all the main speakers sort of guys in the hotel afterwards, and uh, they were in the, the the bar area in some five star hotel. It was quite hilarious. Anyway, we walked in and Sam spent the whole time telling um, all these sort of theological heavyweights who the true Nephilim were and. I mean, he'd, he'd been saved about six months, never read a Bible. And I think they were just all shell-shocked, just sat there. Mike, Mike Reeves particularly was very polite and like, oh, that's very interesting, thank you. So I, love I, it. I found that hilarious, so I oh, left him to it. That's brilliant. And you tell me he's, uh, he's about to become on to... Uh... No, he's been an intern with us for a couple of years now. He's really grown. And then this year, uh, he, he's on our leadership training program and he is, has become what we call a pastoral intern. So he's done three week, two years theological study with, with us, our in-house training program, Ragged School of Theology. And then he is just got married. So he's going to take a year out wow. for some studying. And then we're going to um, try and get him on a theological degree mm. whilst remaining with us. I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful in the next three to five years he'll be a planter or a church pastor. There's no doubt about that. Bless God. Yeah. So That's encouraged great. by him. Yeah. Oh, that's precious. Yeah. And Mez, if people who don't know uh, who you are... Well, I'm the pastor of Nidri Community Church, first and foremost. Yes. Uh, which is a small scheme or council estate church the east side of Edinburgh, famed for being the setting, or at least some of the setting, for the train spotting movies. Oh, uh-huh. I've been there about 15 years. I'm also the di- director of 20 Schemes, but people get confused because they think they're two separate entities. But 20 Schemes is the church planting ministry of our church. It's under the direction of our elder. We're a congregational church and our congregation. And I'm the pastor responsible for the teaching in our church, but also one of two elders responsible for the oversight of 20 schemes. Mm. And so people often think, I pastor a church and then I pastor this parish organization. And it's like, it's not the same at all. It's, mm-hmm. it's a church-based ministry. I always make that clear in every interview. Mm. Excellent. Right. Because I always get asked the question, why do you hate parachurches, which I don't, when you run a parachurch? I'm like, I don't actually run a parachurch. So. Okay. 20 schemes. Why, why is it called 20 schemes? I came up, I had a vision for council estates years ago. So, bef- I mean, I was converted off the streets, went to Bible college very quickly, blah, 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 blah. Mm. Served four years in South America and Brazil with street gangs, planted a church there. 
Uh, so I've always had an interest, obviously, in the, uh, on the rough end of life. I wasn't really a big fan of church. I thought that just gets in the way of mission very early on. And no one around me disabused me of that position. Um, but very quickly in Brazil, I went out to work on the streets and I started many street projects and then quickly became disillusioned and thought, these kids are in and out of homes, in and out. It's just a revolving door. We're not seeing anyone really sticking, saved. The successes were few and far between. Mm. And I began to think, we need more than just giving handouts and, and stuff. We need a local church. So I was working with a gang, a big gang in South America uh, at the time, and worked out that m- the majority of them came from one particularly poor community in the city. Mm-hmm. And so I drove in there, got miraculously, we won't get into it, gifted a, a bit of land, which was just overgrown jungle. Mm-hmm. So uh, we, me and my wife at the time, we still my wife, uh, <laughs> pretty much sold everything we had, raised money, and built a church building on there, which was also a preschool for children, uh, doctor surgery. I mean, we, we built it, we turned this whole thing around and we began to see people get saved. And instead of these kids going to the streets, their family were getting saved. We opened up in small businesses and a, and a church family grew out of it. And I began to see, actually, the importance of a good, solid, healthy local church has far more benefit in the long term in these communities than me just wandering around on the streets, giving out bread and soup and telling them a little bit about Jesus and trying to help them. And so that began my sort of re-educating myself about the importance of the church in the life of a Christian. Mm-hmm. And um, I came back to England for a variety of reasons, uh, one of which was there's very, very little solidly theologically gospel-centered ministry going on in council estates at the time, mm-hmm. at least in the north of England. I grew up in Yorkshire, and um, we thought, look, where we were in Brazil... There were something like 30 churches on a three-mile strip into the city. One church had 15,000 members. None of them were reaching, doing what our church was doing, but I just felt that they, they've got to have the moral responsibility here. And while, while we're in the UK, you're not going to find a... And our research has shown, we call it the corridor of deprivation in the north of England, all the mining and old fishing villages, there's nothing there. And I just felt a real conviction, like, we need to go back. Hmm. Um, and so I went back to actually, wasn't sure what the Lord wanted me to do. Interestingly, in a um, New Frontiers church in Bournemouth, I was visiting a friend of mine while I was on furlough. Uh, I won't get into it, but had an interesting conversation. Um, I remember these two complete strangers said, walked up to me very nervously, actually, and said, we don't know you, but can I just say something to you? And I'm like, as long as it's not freaky and weird, all right? Because I'm not very charismatically inclined, you know. Uh, I didn't go to a charismatic church. Um, although all my friends are basically New Frontiers or charismatic guys. <laughs> and they said, oh, well, you've got this, got an impression in my mind that um, the Lord wants you to go and plant a seed in the UK and that seed's going to grow into 20 trees or something. Something vague, right? Mm-hmm. And then they just left. I just laughed and thought, these people are nuts, aren't they? Mm-hmm. And then only till you know, years later, long after 20 schemes, and I thought, I remember that. But anyway, that's, a, that's an aside, but wow. it's, it's interesting though, yeah, right? Yeah, it is. And anyway, I came, I came to uh, Scotland, moved on to a council estate. Church there was very small, struggling, hadn't really seen any converts for a long time. And unlike in Brazil where I planted, church revitalization in my first five years were an absolute nightmare. Oh, trying to change thinking and structures and vision and heart. 
And it was during the early years I thought to myself, we ought to have a, why is there not a mission movement or a vision for church planting and church revitalization in council estates? They're everywhere, empty buildings from years ago, mm. left derelict. Mm. People have not had the gospel for some of them since the 50s and 60s. And um, so 20 Schemes grew out of an article I read one day in the newspaper. It said 50 of Scotland's worst labour wards. It was a political piece. And I just read through the list of names. And I wonder, I said, like, Nidhi was on there. And I'm like, I wonder how many of those wards have got a gospel church. I had an intern at the time. And we're going back. 20 Schemes is 10 years old this November. So we're going back maybe 13 years ago. I had an intern at the time and I said, look, don't want you to do anything now for the next six months. Go and research these 50 places for me. Find out anything you can get about them online or contacts, contact denominations, see what's going on. And about six months later, I had a massive report, and it was like 80% of them had nothing. <laughs> Many of them had a building and some, maybe some elderly people who met in that building, but generally all of them drove in. Mm. Um, very few lived in. So wow. my idea sort of germinated there. So I, I, it was actually called 50 Schemes. And I think I can't remember why I let somebody talk me off the ledge. It's annoying, though, right? And um, I spent a year before I launched it. I spent six weeks with Tim Keller's church. Did their? They had a program, intensive program called Training Planters to Train Planters. So I was throwing a few things around there. There was eighteen of us from all around the world planting in different contexts. That was interesting for me, just to try and think: How are you doing it? What do you mm. do? What's your leadership development? How yeah. do you training? Wow. Because um, there's not really much happening in the UK. I right. mean, there's co-mission, which is in the selling, but I didn't know much about it. Um, and I wasn't sure how much they were doing in the estates. Anyway, then I spent some time, I don't know why, in Cap- I ended up going to Capitol Hill and spending some time there, which is not exactly the seat of council estate world. You know, they're all sort of preppy schoolboys and, you know, highfalutin theological sort of concepts and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I met Mark Dever, who I'd met previously, and uh, I was throwing, I was, I was there with some of my elders, and I was throwing around, they had a weekend, I was throwing around some ideas for this idea I had. And their director of Nine Marks at the time sat me down for a few hours and helped me craft the a strategy, the idea, what should the structure be, um, how to make sure that it doesn't get, it doesn't drift away from the local church. Keep, you know, it's really helpful stuff. I came back. Twenty schemes was the name we went for. We thought it was a small enough number. So the idea was we want to plant or revitalise twenty churches in Scotland. Schemes in the next ten years, mm-hmm. which I thought was really low. But I thought, you know what? Let's not freak people out. And so we launched it ten years ago. Nidri was the, our, our first base. I think we had five hundred quid that I put into it. I began touring the schemes and speaking to Christians who lived on schemes or people who were interested. And slowly but surely, we built up a, uh, a contact base. And over the last 10 years, we've taken on works and planted churches, revitalized churches. So currently, I think we're including Nidri, we're 10 churches and plants across four cities. The lockdown happened. We've got five teams on standby to launch in the next twelve months. So, we we didn't get we didn't get where I wanted to be, but we're getting there. I think we put a lot of work in the infrastructure for the first seven years, and you know, I spent a long time thinking, how are we going to build this? How's it going to be sustainable? How are we going to produce a leadership channel? We're very keen that the job of any pastor or planter or minister, whoever. 
I think is very clear in scripture, right? We're to prepare God's people for works of service, regardless of socioeconomic standing or academic ability. Mm. And so our big thing is, a big question we asked ourselves in the early days was, I looked at a five-year-old child on my scheme and said, what do we need to do in our church and in our vision to take this five-year-old child who doesn't know anything about Jesus, but by the time they're 25, they are a solid, on fire for Jesus, godly leader mm. of a church. So mm. we need to change our entire mm. outlook. So we've developed a ragged school of theology, which has been in development for the last three or four years. We've kept it in-house. It's associated somehow with union, is that? Well, it's associated with union in so much as the fact that we thought, let's have a little association with union because the, the evangelical world is held in thrall to theological institutions, which I think is an absolute which I think is not helpful for our constituency. <laughs> you mean your constituency or our, what do you mean our constituency? The, the people who are not, didn't finish high school, right. possibly, okay. but they get converted, like Sam, like yeah, yeah. The, the, these guys who you know, didn't do well at school, didn't leave with any qualifications, but gifted evangelist, gifted smart, but would never get into yes. or pass any theological yeah, yeah. degree currently. Yeah, there is a sense in which we're enthralled. And I was reading uh, Truman's book on Luther lately, and it becomes clear that the development that projected Luther onto the stage of history was he hadn't pushed for it, but some other guys were pushing for a debate, and he found himself, he just found himself there. Yeah. However... What we do tend to find in the pages of church history, the people after whom you name your children, the people who are yeah. uh, the people who the pioneers who pushed back the darkness, there has been a history of characters like Whitfield yeah. and Spurgeon who said, "Let's go, let's make yeah. it happen." Now, look, this sounds kind of grandiose, but I don't see a lot of leadership in this country at the moment. I don't see a lot of leadership. Uh, I think we do see internationally, and I rejoice for characters. I really rejoice and pray daily for characters like Piper and Keller and Carson and people who've said and have equipped the church. No. But the academic, in a sense, is always on the back foot because they're always defending. They're always defending their theses, you see? Yeah. And you don't tend to find guys who are... Who are there's a distinction the Apostle Paul didn't sit and, and make a, a, a seminary. He went. He went, you see? And he trains on the go. Uh, my own dad started the New Frontiers group you've mentioned there. Yeah. And they have 2,000 churches in different churches, in yeah. different countries. And he said, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's just go. And that was, they found balance by going. You sit on a bike, right? Yeah. And you're not moving. You fall yeah. over. But yeah. are you moving forward? I'd like just to, I'm going to give you a heading and say, leadership, go. <laughs> well, to be clear about something, I'm not anti-education. I'm pro-education and pro-theological education. Yes. Our next leaders need to be theologically educated. That's properly. conspicuous in what you do. That's right. Um, I'm just anti the model that is only available, it seems, in the UK right now. I know pe churches are trying to, uh, institutions are trying to change, but my question is, and it's a question in my book is, Whose responsibility is it for the theological education of our future leaders? And I don't think it's institutions like, as is we've been told. I think it's the the job of local church pastors okay. to train mm. local church pastors and evangelists. And we train a lot of women, uh, women workers, etc. And I'm not saying that 
we wouldn't make use of theological institutions. I send some of my people to to theological institutions, but um, I think that the the the, the uh, for some I, I can't understand for some reason you can't become a pastor either in the the UK or the states and other westernized nations unless you complete a theological degree. Mm-hmm. And I'm, and I'm and lots of guys who come to me who've had theological degrees, I have to spend most of my time unteaching them. Gosh. They seem to be very arrogant. They've just spent three to five years in a theological hothouse answering questions that none of my people are asking. Mm-hmm. And they seem to have very little. They have great theological and lofty debate. Uh, and my problem with a lot of leadership training is it lacks grounding and actual real life application. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I often make students who come to me and hate me for it, but particularly guys, you get, you know, you get the young guys, the young buck, he comes, somebody in my church says something heretical. I mean, everybody in my church is a heretic, right? Because yeah. um, they're all starting from somewhere. Yes. And he wants to correct everything. Right. If you corrected one of my young believers... You corrected them every time they said a wrong thing. Yeah. You would just be correcting them 500 times a day and it would be draining. And so I, would, I make them That's all right. sit on their hands and they're not allowed to speak. So they'll follow me into a discipleship session and sometimes I'll let things pass. And afterwards I can see these guys, they're straining in their seat. They're like, <laughs> they're like they want to correct. It's like, you just let that go. And I'm like, they're sweating. And I'm like, I like, I'll hug the guy. I'm, teaching and I'll, I'll, t- I'll just make him sure he gets one truth today and, he, and, he, and he, he's being taught that and we're away and then afterwards I'll say right and then they'll burst why don't you do this you said that, you said that. That's absolutely I'm like yeah you've just talked about one person I've got a hundred of these guys in my church mm-hmm. you want to pass to these people you're going to be very busy very tired and very annoying very mm-hmm. quickly mm-hmm. and so um, I think leadership training and education is all but Something's missing, right? And you're talking as a guy who's done two degrees. You know, I had to jump through all the hoops when I came to faith. No one was ever going to take me seriously as a pastor mm-hmm. until I did the, until I jumped through every evangelical hoop. And I think what I've done or what I try to do in my ministry is to, I call it, um, I, I don't want to kill that level. We, we, we need defenders of the faith. Um, but we need a better on-ramp into theological leadership training in the UK, particularly mm-hmm. for those who are uh, living with a 45%, probably more, group of people who are missing from most evangelical churches. Mm-hmm. And I don't know many people in Bible college who are going through their, their academic life going, I'm going to do this, do this, do this, do this. And the big dream is I go and live on a council estate for 30 years in a church of 20 people mm-hmm. and just battle it for Jesus. I mean, it's the whole system is, let's be a youth pastor, I'll do that for a few years and maybe I'll get be an assistant or an associate or a co or get my job. And it's the whole middle class culture, the world, including the church, is just constantly aspirational. I'll get mm-hmm. better, I'll get bigger and I'll get more. And I'm saying, just let's all just slow down here because that's not how I read the Bible. Wow. I read the Bible that says, do the exact opposite of that. Sell it all, give it all up, expend your life here. And, you know, yeah. some of the good men I've got in 20 schemes have given up actually golden futures in bigger churches with more money. And our first few lads over, 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 the, 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 over the trenches, if you like, they're, they're, set, they're setting the agenda for the next generation. 
This is beautiful. Um, and so this is interesting because I would I would put you in the small group of people who you would say as leaders in the country, and you're saying it doesn't. I, you don't believe in the trajectory. You don't believe in the trajectory, which the career path trajectory. You're saying something which is straight out of the Bible. I do think it's striking that you do. You are very intentional, and you're talking in terms of structures. You're talking in terms of taking your people through training and so on. Well, here's where I am. Yeah. If I'm in a community that's not seen a believer for 50 years, okay? 50 years. You just think about that in the UK, 50 years. And I, I know lots of them. Just so you understand, there are 97 schemes in Glasgow alone, right? I can do 20 schemes 10 times over and still not scratch mm-hmm. the surface. Yes, yes. And so if there's no, um, there's been no witness, there's been no Christians, then we are starting from day zero. We've got a, I always say to my team, we're 10 years in. How far away are we from producing our first indigenous elder? Mm-hmm. Maybe another 10 years? Maybe I won't see it in my lifetime. And so what's taken decades of decline and neglect is not going to be turned around by simple, pithy, you know, little strategy. I mean, 20 schemes first shot on the scheme, people, the criticism was, oh, gimmick, da 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 And I'm like, no, we're fighting in the trenches here. We're trying to build structures that outlast us to try and reverse the system. Working class people aren't going to Bible college. Why not? Well, because there's very few of them who are converts. Right. Council estate lads aren't going, and girls aren't going to Bible college. Why not? Because they don't exist yet. So we need to get them to exist. And churches and conferences and the obsession with student ministries in this country, none of it is looking to us or trained to us for any sort of um, what I would call serious leadership development potential, most of the ministry that occurs in our communities is handouts Mm -hmm. and mercy ministries which Mm -hmm. don't tend to produce indigenous leaders and have not produced healthy gospel churches in the last three decades in our communities. Mm -hmm. You reminded me of uh, something Wilberforce said when he was young. He said, uh, we're too young and inexperienced to know that it won't work, so we'll do it anyway, he says. trust, Trust me, it's... Just 20 schemes... Somebody was asking me the other day, so you say a lot of things suck. And I said, yeah, 20 schemes sucks. That's what you need to know about 20 schemes. It sucks. It, I'm not selling a model. I'm trying to sell a vision and a purpose and a strategy. A lot of it might be rubbish. Lots of it might fail. But I don't know who is it he said. I'd rather my something sucky as it is than your nothing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You Moody said that, didn't you? Yeah, I've, sort of, I've just transliterated Moody for the streets. <laughs> Um, okay, talking of the streets, how was it you came to uh, understand and rejoice in Christ yourself? I came to faith through the witness of two men, or actually a group of men, on, when I was living on the streets in the south of England. I'd been on the run from the police for a long time. Uh, I pretty much grew up in care from the age of two. My uh, mother abandoned me, um, grew up in all sorts of children's homes and foster care and Bouncing about the place. I'm actually Irish by birth, but was shipped over to England in the late 70s and put in a big kid's home up there. So I had a wild upbringing, living on the streets. One day these Christians turned up outside this centre where I was dealing drugs and being a pain and uh, started telling me about the gospel, told me I was a sinner, go to hell, and so I repented. And I'm like, I'll punch you right in the face. And uh, I didn't like being told I was a sinner. I liked what my social workers told me was that I was a victim of my circumstances, and therefore I could justify my behaviour. I remember one said to me, You're, if you'd have grown up in a middle-class home with loving parents, 
you wouldn't have made the choices you made. And I thought, yeah, that, that sounds about right. And then I was conf- confronted with the Bible that says, actually, that's absolute crap, mate. You're a sinner. You're a rebel against God. Boo-hoo. You had a tough childhood. Um, but you've got to take some responsibility for your sin. And I was converted reading a Matthew Henry commentary on the Bible, converted by the Book of Romans on my own, I went in a church. I was living with a Christian guy who put me up after I got out of jail. I hated it. I would have smashed Paul in the face, trust me. Um, I hated it, I hated it, I hated it. I knew it was true. Deeply convicted of my sin. I mean, I had a terribly abusive uh, upbringing, but, you know, I had to put that to one side and deal with my soul. And thankfully, God in his mercy saved me that, that, that same day. And uh, then began my slow fight with an introduction to Christian culture, <laughs> Christian world, which I never, I mean, I was 23 years old out of jail. I mean, I, I never met a Christian. I never, I, I would never clue. I wouldn't, as I said in the book, I, I wouldn't have known the difference between a mosque, a synagogue and a church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so about 27 years ago, I came to faith in Christ. Mm-hmm. And within nine months, I was at a Bible college. Wow. So some guys, they confronted you. Yeah. And they brought... And you, the, the guys you've met. Right, yeah, jolly good. Stuart and Ben. Yeah. There you go. They, they talk to you in terms of being a sinner. Yeah. You, got your, you got a hold of a Henry, a Matthew Henry. Yeah. And that's striking. I found it in this Christian dude's house, because I was always a reader. I was quite a, a reader. And uh, I thought, what the heck is this? So I started reading it. I'm thinking, this is madness. But I just thought, I'll, I'll give this a crack. So I read it. I read the whole Bible. Like I said, Romans was particularly, like, brutal. <laughs> really hard. Oh, I love that. I love that. Put that on the back of the book. Romans, this book is particularly brutal. Well, it is, isn't it? It is. It's the law. Uh-huh. You read about the history of lots of um, revivals. It's fascinating to me how many revivals started by a preaching of the law. Mm-hmm. I find that interesting. Yeah, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you, you get converted reading yeah. through that, which I, I like that because I happen to take people through church history. That's my... Okay. Uh, and that's the whole, uh, it's a great opportunity to tell people the gospel where you can say, oh, it changed the world. You know, it's, yeah, yeah. I love that when I'm standing there in front of a group of people in the streets of London and saying, it was here you know, <laughs> that the gospel changed yeah. the world. And you, kind of, you can't really argue with that. There's a date attached to it and things happened. I mean, I uh, thought the geezer was still alive. I was asking my pal, can, <laughs> can we go and see this fella? Do you know what I mean? I'm like, love he's it. like, no, he's, he's, <laughs> is he? Oh, that's fantastic. Okay, so, and who have been people who have become friends of yours? Who, who, have ins- who has inspired you, living or dead? Spiritual influences. Yeah. I mean, quite, I mean, I, my, probably one of my, one of my greatest spiritual in- influences has been a guy called Anthony Finney. Okay. He was a pastor in Swindon where I was saved. I remember when I first got converted and, and went to the church, and it was like a, you know, very conservative church. I think at the time it was maybe still AV only, women wore hats. I mean, it was just a different world for me. But they loved me, that church. And he always taught me, I always remember the thing he taught me, he said, if anything I say or anybody else says to you in this church conflicts with this book, and they had the Bible, he said, we're all wrong. <laughs> and I never forgot that. And I'm like, that's pretty cool. I like yeah, that. Yeah. And um, there's a lot of guys in that church. Another guy called Mark Trafford, who was a guy who took me through a discipleship course almost straight away. I would meet up with him. I mean, I would be armed to the teeth with questions, I, you can imagine. And he was very patient with me. Sort of, uh, I sort of went, went to Bible college very quickly. 
um, and Dick Lucas came one one year. I mean, I went to quite a, at the time, charismatic Bible college, and I won't say what it is, I just I don't want to cast any aspersions, but my tutor at the time said, oh, this, this, this fellow's coming in, his name's called Dick Lucas, uh, you should come here and speak. And anyway, we went to the classroom, and this little fellow waddles in with a little cardigan and some, I think he looks half blind, doesn't he? And, uh, <laughs> and then he's like, start speaking in like that, I mean, you're thinking, this geezer's a judge. I mean, this guy talks posh, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and his opening gambit was, let's open our Bibles. I know that's going to be a novelty for all of you youth workers here, right? And the whole room was offended, mm-hmm. apart from me. <laughs> Absolutely buzzing. Wow. And then he opened the Bible, and he just taught the Bible. And I was absolutely transfixed by it wow it was nothing it was like everybody else like oh afterwards i remember afterwards people going oh, he's boring money absolutely what was he talking about and i'm sitting there going are you are joking me right wow. this guy was unbelievable and then i prop trust was sort of starting off a bit so i went to a couple of preaching things and so he was a big influence another influence is a guy called stuart olliot you know mm-hmm. stuart mm-hmm. he was a he taught me when i went to do um study for a, a, a postgraduate course, which was called Brinterian at that time, a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, really, yeah, a great influence, I would say, mm. in terms of clear thinking and direct speech. Mm. Mm, really? um, yeah, and te- I tend to, I think it's just for cultural reasons, tend to be more attracted to those kinds of plain speakers than some of these guys who are, you know, these big name conference speakers. I mean, I, I speak at T4G and I have these guys, I'm like, I don't. I wouldn't, you'd like confuse me. And I've got two degrees. <laughs> so I like plain, simple guys that probably most people probably don't even know who they are. Um, mm-hmm. Quite like Alistair Begg. He's been, he's, mm. quite, he's, he, he's a great communicator. Yes. I've discovered a geezer in lockdown called Eric Alexander. Oh, yes. What? He's an absolute don, by the oh, way. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you heard him? He is the uncle of uh, the, the wife of my dear friend Ken Brownell. And uh, is he still alive? I've no idea. But if you, anyone's there and you ever watch this, and if your name's Eric Alexander, you are a don, mate. And that is all there is to it. So he is an incredible... Yeah. Yeah, I've, I mean, I'm late to the game with him. Uh, and, there's, and there's a few other guys. Yeah, so I'm not like... I know lots of people expect me to say Piper or mm-hmm. Ever or da 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 Anyone from history who you read and thought, this guy's got it? I mean, I'm supposed to say Charles Spurgeon, aren't I? But... Um, <laughs> That's the correct answer. You know what I mean? A bit of old Spurgers. Do you know what I like? What I like about Spurgers is probably less, you know, the Prince of Preaching stuff. He is in my research for the book and poverty and theological education. Just how much he did for the poor mm-hmm. and yes. uh, learning about Thomas Medhurst. Thomas Medhurst was Spurgeon's first student. Oh, really? He was a w- rough working class lad, apparently, and he didn't want him to go and get the edges knocked off at the theological institutions at the time so he took him under his wing that was gave him a stipend sorted him out sorted out his theology and made sure he could preach but made sure he went straight back to his people and didn't get lost mm-hmm. you know in the way the sort of preaching was was very highly so oratory was sort of um approved of wasn't it and he was like this is rough guy and so um so yeah Thomas Meadows from history, mm-hmm. uh, with a bit of Spurgeon, <laughs> just so you know. Um, oh, do you know what? I read so many people from history. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Now, you've mentioned it a couple of times. I was going to ask, my next question is, what are you up to now? And you've mentioned the book. Yeah, so I've just published The Least, The Last, The Lost, which is basically 20 years of my life's works. She's a, it's a 
critique of UK evangelicalism, what I think is their neglect of the poorest communities in the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And it's not only a critique, uh, it's critique of most mercy ministry in the UK currently that happens. But then it offers, well, my basic thesis is the best mercy ministry is a healthy local church. Yeah, man. And so I'm just arguing for um, not that Christians aren't being generous and kind and loving and wanting to help the poor in the UK, but often their emphasis is in the wrong place. And we should have a much more emphasis on growing healthy churches and developing local leaders. So it's basically my thesis. Sweet. Yes. uh, How is the wisdom of God revealed? Amen. Ephesians 3.10, baby. To the church. Amen. It's the Bible. Yeah. yeah, you've got a bunch of people who, as you say, are equipped. If, you, if, the, if a survey was done of a typical church, how were you all converted? Uh, you find very few of them were done by, uh, were led through some kind of strange ministry in terms of a sort of uh, um, yeah. an adjunct to the church. You'll tend to find it will be the simple ministry of local believers. Like your own yeah. story there is a couple of blokes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most people, Christians, weren't converted by John Piper. Right. My guys wouldn't know John Piper from a bagpiper, right? <laughs> that. Most guys I know have been converted, have been converted through the quiet witness of a family member or a friend or a faithful unknown pastor. And, you know, I think that's cool, right? Excellent. Yes, it is. Can you tell us some more about the the work that went into the book, the research you did and so on? So it's about about a thousand hours of research. I actually paid an American PhD student who didn't know anything, didn't know what a scheme was. And I said, the FIC helped me fund, uh, fund him. So he did the, the, the research. It's in, we, we, in the end, we settled on England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, and London as a separate entity. Mm-hmm. It's so big. And he just basically researched where are, where are the poorest places in the country right now, what constitutes or what does poverty look like for them? Because obviously poverty looks different. Obviously, you're in a, did you say Bangladeshi community? Yeah, yeah. We don't have any Bangladeshis in Nidri. Mm-hmm. We have very few cultural mixes, whereas a, 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 a predominantly black housing estate in London is different from a paramilitary estate in Northern Ireland. Right? Mm. But so we we looked at what how are these communities being affected by poverty? We looked at seven or eight different source materials and resource materials, and we put together basically a comprehensive list of what does poverty vision look like in modern Britain. Mm-hmm. The FIC funded it, and we did a small survey of where and what are FIC churches doing, 600, whatever, whatever around the UK. Where are they in relation to these communities, and how effective are they being? Mm-hmm. So that, that research is all online. So there's a sort of barcode you click in the book, and you get that research. And then the book is just the more popular, if you like, how I've experienced Christianity as an outsider um, coming in from nowhere, almost for a few years got sucked into camp theological education and then i went to a very well-off church to be an assistant pastor was leaving my roots well behind and before i thought hang on a minute this isn't right what am i doing and then going back to my roots and taking the gospel back there so superb it looks like a potentially important and unique work the least the last and the lost and uh, finally, and this, you have to just take this as you will. What advice would you give to people listening to this? I don't know who's listening to it. Probably switched off already. <laughs> just love Jesus, man. Uh, do you know what? I, I get a lot of criticism. Twenty schemes get a lot of criticism. 
I'm a very outspoken sort of dude. You might know that about me. But here's what I don't do, and I find this in Christian circles, particularly amongst pastors, is that it's a very bitchy world. Mm-hmm. And people seem like they don't like success, or they're always suspicious if you've got a vision and it's working. You know, there's like wow. guys seem to be quick to do each other down. And, and mm-hmm. I don't go to, you know, a, a New Frontiers church. I'm not a sort of New Frontiers. I don't buy into the, you know, the whole charismatic sign gift stuff for today, etc. Although I'm not cessationist. But, but I can celebrate what a great work that they do around the world for Jesus Christ and reaching people that I'm not reaching. I'm not a Banner of Truth sort of dude that goes to Banner of Truth conferences and buys all the books, although I've got most of their books. But I can celebrate the fact that these geezers are reaching a demographic that I'm never going to see. And so um, I'm just trying to reach my people in the best way I know how for the glory of Jesus. I want to see a whole generation of council estate Christians, not just being recipients of middle-class beneficence, but being equipped, Mm. uh, theologically astute and able to lead gospel churches in the next generation. And so support us. You don't have to like us. You don't maybe have to, might Mm. not even understand us, but Mm. support us. Yes. You think that should be obvious for someone who's believed a gospel, which says you bring nothing to this. Yeah. Unfortunately, it is too rare. Incidentally, off the back of that, we were talking earlier about, um, Social media. I used to see you occasionally on social media. Don't see you anymore. Could you talk to that a little? Yeah. I mean, I'm still on Twitter. I got off Facebook about five years ago. I just found it incredibly distracting. Mm. And, and, I'm, and I'm for a number of reasons, but one of which was when you live in a council estate, everyone's on Twitter, uh, Facebook. It's like, you know, you're sitting there watching a guy who's just conf- Best faith in Jesus sat with his mates with a big spliff hanging out of his mouth. I mean, they would just put ridiculous things. So you're like, every almost pastoral issue I had was coming off the back of Facebook posts or this, that, and the other. So in the end, I said, right, I'm getting off this. It's not helpful. Wow. And then Twitter was more, what, what am I doing here? I'm, mm. I'm fighting battles mm. and capping against people online about issues that actually won't really affect what they're irrelevant to what I'm doing. And yet I'm mm-hmm. spending days thinking about some comments someone said and what do they right. mean by that and right. they do that and, and if i got enough likes and if i say this and i'll jump in and i'll support so i'm like wow it's like the coliseum yep. isn't it wow and so i thought i repented and came off and i can say it's the it's the best thing i've ever done for my mental health my spiritual well-being i've not found it in any way has been detrimental to my ministry i know lots of people like to build a platform and all this stuff um and I, i've just you know I found I've actually had less stress in my life. You know, you can find me on Instagram, but there I'm just posting pictures of walks with our foster kids or you know, nothing to get offended about Sweet. too much. So, yeah, that's why I'm off. I tell you what, those are, those are important words, I think, from a leader in our time. Uh, the, 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 you're not missing anything from not being on social media. That yeah. is, and not only that, but you were missing something by being on it. Thank you so much for no this worries, time. Man. We have had a, had a great time talking with you. Thank you so much for your time. No worries. And bless you. Amen. And your dad's a geezer, by the way. <laughs> for more episodes of the Christian Heritage London podcast and for information on Christian Heritage London events, tours and walks, please go to christianheritagelondon.org.